morning, church. Uh, good to be with you all, whether you're here in person or with us online. I uh, hope you are encouraged by our time together as we turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'm going to be reading from verses 54 through 62. Luke 22, verses 54 through 62. Hear the word of the Lord. Then they seized him, referring to Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour still, another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. He had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And as you do, let me take a moment to pray for us um, in our time of worship together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your presence and your love that is made manifest in so many ways, but most notably in Jesus Christ, the righteous king. Lord, I ask that, that all who hear these words that are aligned with your word, that we would surrender to them. And so, Lord, whether we are here in, in person in this space, whether we are in our spaces in our homes, would you speak to us? Would you reveal to us the beauty, the majesty, the power of the Lord Jesus as king and the kingdom that he is bringing that is now and will be forever? Lord, form us and shape us by your word in this time. We pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, I want you to think of a time in your life. It could be recent. It could be childhood. So for those of you kids, you're in childhood. That's, that's, that's now, okay? So think of a time when you were cornered, when, when you were kind of pressured into a situation. You, you felt maybe attacked or ganged up on, accused. Uh, you, you, you felt that you were kind of just in a place where you had nowhere to turn. What, what did you do in that moment? What did you feel? How did you respond? What did you say? And maybe more importantly, like, who did you become in that moment? Who do you become when you're called to the principal's office? That happened uh, a few times in my life, and so that's a story for another day. But, but what do you do in that moment when you're called to the principal's office? Or, or what happens when you're accused of, of incompetent work uh, in your place of business? What happens when you're, you're challenged or confronted by, by a spouse or a loved one? What happens when you are, are attacked or ridiculed by people who claim to be in your corner? What happens when you're passively, aggressively referenced by a neighbor on social media because you don't put your trash cans away right away, hypothetically? I don't know anything about this. What do you do in these moments when you're cornered, when you're pressured? You see, just like squeezing a tube of toothpaste reveals the, the contents inside, these moments where we're pressured and cornered reveal the true nature of our character. 
What comes out of us in those moments is truer than we may care to admit. In fact, just yesterday, I was riding my bike, went on a bike ride, and I crashed and fell. And I think I cracked a rib, it's possible. I definitely blew out a tire. And in that moment, how I responded was less than um, admirable or reputable. And so if you're anywhere near Shawnee Mission Park, you may have heard me say things that you don't hear in Disney movies. But all the, all the point being is that in these moments where we're pressured and cornered, what comes out of us in those moments tells something about our character. Now, if you're, if you're new to Christ's community, we've been journeying through the gospel of Luke as we're seeking to rediscover Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth, and he has come to bring his kingdom to earth, which is where God's reign and rule brings about what God really wants. And as we get closer and closer to the events of Good Friday and Easter, we come to our passage in Luke 22, where Jesus himself, we find him cornered, pressured, attacked, denied, and betrayed. But how does Jesus respond? What kind of king is Jesus? What comes out of him in those moments? And we see something very contrary to what normally comes out of us in moments similar to Jesus's. And so, so the first thing I want us to consider as we turn to Luke 22 is this, that Jesus is the king who overcomes threats with trust. Jesus is the king who overcomes threats with trust. If you were with us last week, we saw how Jesus was praying in the garden, in the Mount of Olives, and praying before as he's preparing for his death on the cross, and we see the full humanity of Jesus on display as he's praying in, in deep anguish of body and soul. We see, yes, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, fully God, but he is also fully man. And we saw that in display in his prayer as he was awaiting what was to come. And in this time of deep, honest, heart-wrenching prayer, Jesus is praying and preparing himself for what comes next. And we see what comes next, starting in verse 47. Look with me there. While he was still speaking, referring to Jesus, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas. One of the twelve was leading them, the crowd. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? So just, just kind of imagine for a minute, place yourselves in the, the proverbial sandals of Jesus and try to understand what he is feeling in this moment. Again, he is fully human and empathizes with our experiences. He, he has just finished praying one of the heaviest prayers of his entire life. He is just, and his best friends can't even stay awake with him during this great hour of anguish. He is now being betrayed by one of, one of his acclaimed friends and he's going to be denied by another one. And now there's a threatening crowd that surrounds him that wants to murder him. What would you be feeling in this moment? How would you respond? And who would you become? Now, I say that for some of us, that's not hard for us to imagine because many of us right now and, and throughout our lives, we know the pain of betrayal. We know what it's like to be, to be betrayed by someone who claimed to love us. And, and that may be you right now. You, maybe your interest is peaked uniquely right now because you're hearing afresh this reality that Jesus understands and sympathizes with your pains and wounds of betrayal that, that for some of us are still very raw and open and real. And as your pastor, as, as, as your brother, as a friend, and, and as a representative of our church, I want to say to you two things. One, we, we, we want to know you and care for you in, in this pain of betrayal. So we'd love to just know what is going on, what you're facing, what you have faced. 
We encourage you to reach out to someone. If you're online, please reach out to us through our website. We'd just love to care for you in this time. But the second thing is this, is that Jesus knows our, our, our pain of betrayal. He knows uniquely what it is like to be betrayed by those who have claimed to love him. Jesus knows our pain and he weeps with us in it. But in addition to that, we see that Jesus offers us a way to overcome the pains of betrayal. Look with me at verses 52 through 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hand on, hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So in this moment, Jesus is cornered and he's betrayed, not just by his opponents, but by a friend, a supposed friend. And yet he responds with the very posture that he was praying for just moments earlier as he prayed in anguish of soul and body, not my will, but yours be done. His prayer to the Father. And in this moment, Jesus is now prepared to respond to a moment of betrayal, a moment of being cornered with a posture of trust. In this moment of what is per maybe perceived weakness, we actually see the power of Jesus on display in his ability and capacity to entrust himself in the midst of injustice, to entrust himself to the infinite loving, powerful, and wise plan and will of the Father. He doesn't lash out in retaliation. In the midst of injustice, Jesus trusts in the justice of God. This is what enables Jesus to, to not lash out, to, to not pay back. And in fact, this very posture that we see made manifest here in Jesus that Peter undoubtedly is witnessing, and I, I, I've got to believe, in, influenced and inspired Peter to pen these words later on in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter says this, for to this you have been called. He's, he's writing to Christians who are under persecution for their faith and allegiance to Jesus. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, this is the example. This posture that Jesus has is not just showing that he is, well, sure, the Son of God. He is also the Son of Man, fully human, showing us how we are to respond in moments of being cornered, betrayed, attacked, and accused. And so let me ask us this question. In light of, of what we're seeing from Jesus in Luke 22, let me ask us this question. Do we trust that God is just? Do we trust that God is just? So often our, our fear, our anxiety, our, our cynicism, our bitterness in life can be traced back to either a refusal or a failure to believe and accept that God is just and that he will set the world to rights, that he will not allow the wicked to go unpunished, and that he will protect the innocent. Do we believe that God is just? Because it's, it's actually the reality of God as a God of justice that compels us and empowers us to be a people who don't pick up the sword and respond in vengeance and payback. But if there is no God of justice, well then what are we left to do? 
We, we can see why retaliation and violence and payback, an endless cycle of payback, can be produced in our world if there is not a God of justice. Now, what this doesn't mean, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying, to, to believe that God is just doesn't mean that we just passively go along with whatever happens to us and say, thank you, may I have another. But rather, what, what, what it means to trust that God is just is that in the midst of injustice or pain or attack or accusation against us, we can trust that God will set the world to rights, that he is infinitely wise, infinitely loving, and infinitely powerful in all that he does. And Jesus, our King, shows us in his submission to the will of the Father in a moment of great injustice, he shows us what it means to not take up the sword and to not seek payback. And that comes from trusting that God is just. Do you trust that God is just and will set the world to rights? So Jesus is the king who overcomes threats with trust. But secondly, Jesus is the king who overcomes violence with healing. Jesus is the king who overcomes violence with healing. So, so before Jesus gives himself up to the authorities, and I mean, Jesus is very much in control here, even though he is surrendering himself to the authorities, Jesus is still in control. But Luke records for us this very powerful exchange in verses 49 and 51. Turn there with me. Verse 49 says, and when those who were around him, referring to Jesus, when they saw what would follow, they said, Lord, so his disciples say, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his, his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Now, what, what I find rather humorous in this moment, I mean, it's like the, like the disciples come to Jesus, they're like, shall we take up the sword? And they don't wait for Jesus to grant permission. And this other guy just picks up the sword and responds. It's like, did you even care what Jesus was interested in? Like, like what's his opinion is of this matter? It's kind of like, this happens often in my home, my son Edmund will come up to me with a half-eaten graham cracker asking for a snack. Just like, you're, you're, you're not really interested in my authority and opinion of this situation, you've just circumvented my authority. But that's in some ways what's happening. The disciples, kind of assuming that they, like, Jesus, you want us to cut off his ear, right? Like, this is what you want. There's this assumption that this is the way that Jesus is wanting for them. This is the path of the kingdom, now contrast what, what, what Jesus does with what his disciples do in this moment. Jesus responds by trusting that God is just. But the disciple chooses to become judge, jury, and executioner in one moment. So clearly this disciple like slept through a lot of Jesus' sermons, most notably the Sermon on the Mount. Like, like if, if there were a class or lecture Jesus was teaching, like love thy neighbor 101, this guy failed it. He's got to take it again next semester. So, Je so Jesus in this moment, he, he tells something definitive. He, he is not just merely saying, hey, buddy, like, what were you thinking? Can you help me understand, like, what, what your thought process was? He, Jesus says something definitive about the kind of king he is and the kind of kingdom that he is bringing and that his subjects and that his disciples are to live in. It is a kingdom that is diametrically opposed to violence. Which kind of sounds like if you have any kind of remote understanding of Jesus, you're like, yeah, duh, I, I think I get that. But Jesus is saying something really profound that we must catch. He is not just saying that violence is bad and we should refrain from it. 
but he's actually saying that his kingdom is marked by not just the absence of violence, but the presence of healing, of peace and restoration. And, and this is made visible in what Jesus quite literally does next in healing the man's ear. That's not just a miracle to, sh to show his divinity. Jesus is saying something about the kind of king he is and of the kind of kingdom that he is bringing. Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally marked by a, a presence of nonviolence and a presence of healing and restoration. And his, and his followers should, should follow suit. In fact, I mean, th this, this idea of, of nonviolence and peace has been the hallmark of the people of Jesus from the very beginning. In fact, in, there's an ancient letter, uh, Pastor Nathan mentioned this a few weeks ago, an ancient letter that's dated to the, the second or third century called the Epistle to Diognetus. Diognetus was a Roman nobleman, and in this letter, there are multiple places where he describes Christians, this kind of new fledgling religious sect. And Diognetus says this, he says, Christians love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are dishonored and yet in their very dishonor are glorified. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. This is the description of those whose king declares definitively, no more of this. And so the question for us, church family, is are, are we still described in these same ways? Is the church of Jesus Christ, as a gathered community, as a scattered people, are we known as a people who are not only against violence, but are for peace and for healing? And this is a very important question in our day, because this, this posture is in many ways, it was radical then, and it's still in some ways radical now. Especially when we live in a time and age in our country where a recent survey showed three out of ten people in our nation agreed with the statement that if elected leaders will not protect America, the people must do it themselves, even if it requires violent actions. Three out of ten people, that, that's a startling statistic, and it's a statistic that describes people on both sides of the aisle. That is an alarming statistic describing our current cultural moment that we're in. And so are we, as the followers of Jesus, do we stand opposed to violence like this? I mean, we, we've seen this violence throughout our nation this past year. We've seen it in the riots throughout the cities around our country. We, we saw it in, in the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. And, and that was uniquely startling because you, you saw that mixed with it was images of the Christian faith. Which doesn't mean that everyone who was there at the protest uh, was in, in affirmation of storming the Capitol, and that it doesn't mean that everyone storming the Capitol was in affirmation of the Christian faith, but, but seeing these images mixed, it should cause us, if we are faithful followers of Jesus, to say, do we believe, are we marked by the truth of our King that says no more of this? So regardless of what kind of protest you would find yourself at, are we the kind of people that echo boldly along with our king, no more of this, no more violence, no more hatred, both in terms of violent reactions, but also of vilifying rhetoric? Our world is desperate for the church of Jesus Christ, for genuine, faithful, and fruitful believers to be a presence of not just nonviolence, but a people who bring peace and healing. And so let me ask us this question, church family. Are we a people of healing?
Are we a people of healing? If you are a follower of Jesus, are you known for being a person whose very presence brings a sense of peace and blessing, of of calmness, a a non-anxious presence to the places that God has called you in your home, in your place of work, in your school, in your communities? Are we known as a people of peace? Are, Are we, as the church gathered, a people who are so welcoming and inviting and hospitable to all who God would grace us with their presence who come in through these doors or join us online? Are we as the church scattered in the places God has called us, in our homes, our work, our school, when we're on social media in the public square, when we're even in line at the grocery store, are we such a people who represent the peace and the healing of our King? Are we a people who would rather be harmed than harm? Think about that for one minute maybe two minutes, <laughs> would we rather be harmed than harm? And, and, and hear me, what I'm not saying is that are we a people who avoid doing harm? That, 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 is, that, is, that is not a sufficient ethic of the, the kingdom of Jesus. Uh, what, like it's, it's the difference between the golden rule and the silver rule. Maybe you've heard this. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The silver rule is don't do unto others that which you don't want them to do unto you. Do you see the difference? The first is very much proactive, intentional, aligned with the kingdom of Jesus. I am willing to do for others what they need and what they want done. But to settle for don't do unto others what you don't want done unto you, that is the weak sauce version of the ethic of the kingdom of Jesus. Are we a people who are willing to seek the good of others even when it costs us? Because we are marked by our king who says no more of this. May we as a church, both gathered and scattered, be a people who live out loud what Jesus declared, no more of this, no more hatred, no more violence, no more division, no more prejudice, no more fear, no more abuse of power. May we be a people of healing and peace like our King, amen? For he is a King who overcomes threats with trust. He overcomes violence with healing, but lastly, Jesus is the king who overcomes denial with deliverance. And here we come to the the climax of this this pericope, this this part of the story in Luke 22, uh, Peter's denial, his threefold denial. In fact, this this, this story shows up in all four gospels, and that's a very unique thing, which means we should pay very close attention to it, and it's, it's within the passion narrative, which means this narrative of Peter denying Jesus three times is integral to what Jesus is accomplishing in his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus has just willfully given himself up to the authorities that want him dead. He's been, he's been denied, he's been betrayed, and he is now under threat of murder. And in this moment, Peter is floored. And, and I think partly why he's floored is because he just saw Jesus like, you had an opportunity to, to, like, to take over but instead you're giving up, you're showing yourself to be weak. Peter is shocked by the nonviolent path that, that, that Jesus has chosen to take in advancing his kingdom. And so I think Peter is just completely incredulous. He doesn't know what to do. Like, this is the way, looking like we lose, giving in to the authorities. And so Peter, who's completely shocked, overwhelmed, not, not knowing what to make sense of what Jesus just did, is now confronted twice, back to back, asking if he is known, if he, if he knows Jesus. So here, look with me at verses 59 and 60. The first two pretty much come back to back. And after an interval, oh, I'm sorry, uh, 
verse 59 through 60. Sorry, the, so the first two come back to back. Then the third, the third one, and th- this kind of stood out to me afresh. The third denial comes after an hour. So look, look with me now, verses 59 and 60. After an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So after denying Jesus two times, Peter has an hour to kind of sit in the corner and think about what he just did. And and, and instead of redeeming himself and aligning himself with Jesus in a hostile environment, uh, Peter doubles down and denies Jesus a third time. And then Luke records these stinging words for us in verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter's just denied the Son of God. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. As Peter looks at Jesus, looking at him, Peter feels the weight of what he has just done, denying the author of life and truth. And he's overwhelmed and responds by weeping bitterly. And that's a very unique statement in the Gospel of Luke. Because in virtually every account of someone weeping before Jesus, Jesus responds to them with compassion. And Peter is no exception, even though it doesn't happen right away. But we do see Jesus' compassion towards Peter later on in this narrative. We, We don't see it until after Jesus is resurrected, but Peter is delivered by Jesus is the recipient of compassion because Peter wept bitterly. After the resurrection of Jesus, he he interacts with uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then Luke records for us in, in chapter 24, verse 34, these words, the Lord has risen indeed and he has appeared to Simon. And Simon is the other name for Peter. Now, we don't know what Jesus said to Peter in this this intimate moment, but what we do know is that the resurrected Jesus, who has defeated sin and death, has come to appear to the one who denied him three times. And what we know of Peter is that his life was radically transformed after that. We don't know what was said, but what we do see is that Peter was delivered, even amidst his denial. The irony is that Peter in trying to gain power and self-preservation in denying Jesus, actually showed himself to be rather weak and broken. But in his broken and uh, bitter tears, Peter finds a power that Jesus uses to bring deliverance. In his brokenness and tears, he experiences true power as he weeps before Jesus, for it was through his tears of regret, of sorrow and remorse that Jesus delivered him. So as we think about Peter and his denial of Jesus, and his subsequent deliverance through Jesus, I want to ask us this last question. Do you believe that Jesus can deliver you? Do you believe that Jesus can deliver you? I I do not doubt that there are many of us who are here or online who who identify with Peter, who who see our our own reflection in, in Peter's face, We've denied Jesus in some way, shape, or form through, through things we've said, through how we've conducted our lives, through choices we've made, through lies that we have come to believe about ourselves, about, about the world, about Christ himself. And perhaps you find yourself overcome with guilt, with shame, with regret, 
and sorrow. And what I want to say and what I, what I believe Jesus is telling us through the story of Peter is that if you are hurting and broken within and overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is calling and that there's no amount of denial that can keep Jesus from delivering you through what you have done, through what you have said, through how you've lived your life or who you have become in moments of being cornered and attacked. For there is no one so lost in sin that Jesus cannot go find. There's no one who's so far gone that Jesus cannot go after and bring near. There's no one who is, who is so far beat down and struck down that Jesus cannot lift up. And there's no one whose denial of Jesus that is so heartbreaking that Jesus cannot deliver. Amen? Which is so beautifully and powerfully captured in one of my favorite hymns, I saw one hanging on a tree, a hymn that is inspired by this very interaction that Peter has with Jesus. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, and he fixed his loving eyes on me as near his cross I stood. My conscience felt and owned the guilt, and it plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt, and helped to nail him there. And then this beautiful refrain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I die that you may live. There is no one who has denied Jesus so greatly, so sincerely, that he cannot or she cannot be delivered through Christ's redeeming work on the cross. Jesus is the king who overcame our sin and guilt. Jesus, the king who overcame our shame and regret, our failure and mistakes by becoming all of it and nailing it to the cross so that we bear it no more. For at the cross, Jesus overcame every threat against us, all the violence within us, and every denial of him from us. And so friend, you may feel cornered, you may feel trapped, you may feel beat down and lost, but Jesus sees you and he knows you, and he has come to deliver you. I pray that your tears would be the beautiful lens through which you see Jesus seeing you, who has come to deliver you.